Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that I'm on, Gadigal land, the land of the Eora Nations. And I'd like to pay my utmost respects to elders past and present and extend that to the lands you're all on today. Any conversation in this country, including one on racism, no less, must begin with the remembrance that sovereignty was never ceded, that this terra was not nullius, and that this is, was, and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your moderator this afternoon. I'm Sarah Saleh, and I'm so honored and grateful to uh, be here with our very special guests, uh, academics, authors, Dr. Ghassan Hajj, Dr. Randa Abdel Fattah, and Dr. Michael Mohammed Ahmed for this important conversation marking 20 years since 9-11. Mohammed, when you first approached me a while ago about this panel, we deliberated about the kind of conversation we wanted to have. It's no secret that 9-11, which of course is a tragic, uh, was a tragic loss of life, has also resulted in all forms of uh, intensified racism and Islamophobia and policing perpetuated against black and brown communities around the world and here in Australia. So can you tell us a little bit about what led you to this particular title of the panel? Because you know, I must say a title that along with the image is quite confronting and possibly triggering for some of us. Thank you for the question, Sarah, and uh, salamu alaikum to you and to Randa and to Ghassan. Uh, I feel very honoured also to be on this panel with all of you today. Um, so I was asked to cur curate this event and um, one of the most interesting phenomenons, and this, what I'm about to say informs the way I, I put together the event. Uh, one of the interesting phenomenons that manifest after 9-11 is that the entire world uh, absorbed the, the Muslim threat in one way or another. Um, but each country uh, found a kind of representation, a metonym, uh, some kind of embodiment for the threat, uh, which was unique to that country. And, uh, you know, uh, scholars like Ghassan and also like uh, Dr. Sharina Dries have written about this extensively, that in um, countries like Britain, for example, it was the Pakistani that was the embodiment of the global Muslim threat. And in uh, Germany, it was Turks that became the embodiment of the Muslim threat. In the United States, it was the image of the Saudi that seemed to be a, some kind of symbolic representation in the public consciousness for the idea of this Muslim threat. And so what happened in Australia was uh, the term Lebanese became that embodiment of the threat, which is why we saw um, the word Lebanese and uh, being inter used interchangeably with words like Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern appearance, Arab and Muslim. And why so much of the rhetoric, uh, uh, Islamophobic rhetoric was under the, uh, under the banner of Lebanese. And so that isn't to say that anti-Arabness and anti-Lebanese-ness is the only form of Islamophobia that exists in Australia or that it's more important than any other form. It's just one form that I think is incredibly interesting and important and that I wanted to discuss with my Arab brothers and sisters. What you referred to just then, I think sounds like it's uh, quite a uniquely Arab Australian experience, you know, the specificities or the particularities of that racism that we experience, though um, in some of your writings, it does, and other, you know, plethora of literature, it does parallel the way that, that you know, that African-American males, for example, in the US have been portrayed. 
Um, but to go back to, you know, the construction of the Arab between slick billionaires, bombers, belly dancers, and sort of barbaric stereotypes, the construction of the Arab in Australia in a post 9-11 era, the Leb has been a caricature at best, uh, dehumanizing at worst, um, you know, and that's brushing over it lightly. And that's on ongoing. So Ghassan, I would love to hear your thoughts on the Arab in the Australian imagination. Sure. Uh, thanks. At, uh, I think sort of like one has to look at, uh, at what Australia shares with the rest of the world and what is uh, specific to Australia. And first of all, uh, we can say that uh, there is an anti-Lebanese, which transformed into more generally anti-Arab racism, that existed in relation to migration. So, so Lebanese were subjected to the same kind of racism that Greeks and Italian migrants uh, were, were subjected to. But at the same time, this, this racism articulated itself to a uh, much, much more general uh, current of racism, which we might call civilizational racism, which has to do with the relation between uh, Christianity and Islam in relation to the Crusaders and the rise of modernity and what have you, which brings in a particular strand of racism into the West and uh, to Australia. And finally, there is a specific uh, anti-Arab racism, which has a colonial origin, uh, which is linked especially to the colonization of Palestine, now, uh, or materialized in the colonization of Palestine. And so it gives anti-Lebanese and anti-Arab and anti-Lebanese uh, Muslim uh, racism in Australia, a very intense specificity, which makes it, in a way, because of the colonial background, uh, closest, if you like, to uh, the racism to which indigenous people have been uh, subjected. Rhonda, do you, do you agree with Ghassan's sort of characterization? And um, can I also ask what your thoughts are and whether we're living what Ghassan called decades ago a white nation fantasy? Yeah, I think that um, I, I remember when I was doing my PhD, I was looking at Islamophobia from the point of view of the perpetrators. And I started to sort of address the issue by, you know, peeling back the layers of what race means in this country. Um, I couldn't actually understand what race and racism against Muslims was until I understood the racial logics of empire and the fact that everything was taking place on stolen land and the same racial logics that animated you know, the idea of a white Australia policy, the idea that this was terra nullius and then um, you know, the, the, sim the symbolism was taken away and yet still sovereignty um, has never been, um, you know, dealt with. It's sort of, you know, like Aileen Warden Robinson says, the unfinished business of sovereignty. All of that, it, it made me start to think about what it meant to be Muslim in this country. And I started to speak to people with my PhD and there was one incident in particular that sparked something about how there was a specificity to Lebanese-ness in Sydney in particular. We had just, my parents had just bought a holiday place um, in a, new, a central coast um, New South Wales uh, city, town, and um, my father and I were walking along the street and 
it was at it was at time of Christmas, and I had only ever seen it before during the non-peak season when it was, and it's it's well known to be a largely Anglo majority place. And of course, at Christmas time, it's Western Sydney descends on there, and you're just bumping into people everywhere you know from Parramatta, Granville. As we were walking down the street, my father and I, um, a car drove past and yelled out, "Go back home, you bunch of pump- pumpkin seeds!" And my dad and I were laughing our head <laughs> off at the same time as we were trying to figure out what it was that that attracted that slur of go back home, you bunch of pumpkin seeds. Because this is the thing that Hassan talks about as well is as anti-racism activists, we often, you know, sit there and we think that the way that race, racists um, behave is logical and um, that it's cohesive and they are constantly changing the game. And it was so particular. It was so particular, not only in, in the sense that it was particular to the Lebanese who, and I know this because I'm not Lebanese, but my my family, it's, um, extended families, friends all go there, congregate, and they eat pumpkin seeds on the beach. And so it was so specific to that place. And at the same time, there was nothing to indicate that we were Lebanese or Muslim or Arab. But my father instantly knew, I instantly knew that that's what, how they were marking us. And so there was a history there that we were um, picking up on. And as I spoke more and more to people, there was this collapsing between Muslim and Leb, Muslim and Leb, and even further, Muslim, Leb, and Christian Leb. And then, you know, it's this idea of this hierarchy of um, acceptance and, and um, hierarchy of capital. Uh, and so I started to realise that the specific, how specific racism can be, but also it's so difficult to fight it because it can be so fluid as well. I, I laugh about uh, pumpkin seeds, uh, but obviously that denotes, you know, these deep-seated um, anxieties about control and about sense of self and beyond. And I, I do want to take a second to, you know, um, stop and ask, because Hassan, you know, you're here as an expert, obviously, as a widely respected um, expert, but you also have lived experience. And I'm mindful that this is very a very visceral thing. So I want to know, um, you know, if uh, this Arab phobia and Islamophobia, because as Randa said, you know, these these kind of they're not easily discernible. They're collapsed. I want to know if it's been a feature for you. Uh, well, I won't say growing up because I know you came as a sort of uh, in, in your twenties, but being in Australia, being a migrant here, if uh, you saw this play out for you and how it played out for you. Uh. You mean you mean personally how it was played out? Yes. Yes. That's right. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think I think I think one of the the important things to uh, sort of like think about how racism manifests itself in very different contexts in very different ways, and. Uh, you know, sort of like you have polite racism, you have uh, really non-polite racism. So I have uh, I have uh, always uh, existed in Australia in very polite company. <laughs> and so uh, I have never been uh, subjected to racists who are not able to smile at you while you're there digging something into you. And uh, so I wouldn't want to generalize too much from my perspective. But at the same time, I think uh, I increasingly think about how imp- important it is to think the difference between when I started teaching, for instance, at university, uh, 
and now, uh, you know, I was the only person from non non English background in in my whole uh, school, not just my whole department. And I often say to people now when they say we need more representation, uh, that that actually comes from a certain power. You have to have at least four or five people to be able to say, we need more representation, because when you are one, you can't even say that much. <laughs> and so, so yeah, so racism manifests itself in, in various sort of like structured and unstructured uh, ways like this. But I'm sure no less uh, violent. They, they sound they're just a different kind of violence. Mohammed, has that been your experience, or your your experience has been different up Western Sydney and as an Australian-born Leb? Yeah. Um, so I want to pick up on the first points that Gassan and Randa were making to answer your question. Um, wh what I would say is like my all four of my grandparents and then all of my aunties and uncles and my parents on both sides migrated to Australia from Lebanon in the 70s. And so in, in that way, I'm Lebanese or Lebanese-Australian, but more specifically, I'm Leb. And it's really important uh, to, to recognize that the idea of the Leb is not so much shorthand for Lebanese. It's this unique identity that manifests itself around the time of the September 11 attacks, but even slightly before then. Um, which was uh, what cultural theorists and anthropologists and sociologists call um, a, a hybrid formation. It's a, it's a hybrid identity. It has elements of Arabness in it. It also has elements that are uniquely Australian in it. Um, and you were talking earlier about the African-American um, parallels. And you see in the idea of the lead, this unique category, you see, um, you see performances of African-American subaltern you know, performance playing itself out. And what I found most fascinating about the idea of the lab is that, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the groups that I operated in and I, and I lived in, I had friends who were Indonesian background who identified as lebs, uh, Afghan, Iraqi, Palestinian, Jordanian, Syrian. Um, and so this, it's a kind of totally brand new identity. And so growing up in Western Sydney as a lab, you know, as this very unique and very marginalized and heavily scrutinized group. I just felt like from every, you know, from day to day, I was being uh, scrutinized one way or another. Uh, you know, we talk about the, uh, the 2005 Cronulla riots, but I have my own personal experiences of being in Cronulla and being physically assaulted literally by large groups of white men because of the way I looked and because of the way I walked and the way I dressed. I have memories of police officers targeting us and harassing us. And, um, and uh, intimidating us and threatening us because of the way we looked. I have memories of cab drivers refusing to, um, to uh, let me get in a cab unless I paid up front. I have memories of being targeted at airports uh, on my honeymoon, me and my white wife. I remember being at um, LAX airport and literally alarms going off when I went through the, uh, you know, through the machines and being taken, separated from my wife and being inter interrogated for hours because of the way I looked and because of my name. I remember my first experience uh, of racism. I was five years old and this, the kids, the white kids in my school calling me a Lebanese prick. You know, and so it's, it's been this kind of lifelong experience of what it means to be a Leb and to be othered as a Leb in Australia. That is very personal. It's not just political. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the airport. Uh, airports, uh, beaches, they've definitely been a site for some of this, uh, where this politics has played out and certainly still reside and take up space in my psyche uh, because it is quite um, visceral, as I said earlier. And I guess I'm, I want to follow this, your experiences with um, and how, you know, we think the West's image of us sits with ourselves, with the kind of parallel to the younger generation, let's say, or call them the post 9-11 generation, because Rhonda, that's a that's basically the premise of your book. It's a big thing that you explore in, in coming of age. Um, you know, so for us, we've come up in an age where uh, countless condemnations and counter narratives and the social engineering, the ways that we as Arabs have had to prove ourselves um, and play model migrants, uh, and yet, we're still enduring these sort of tired arguments about the problem of our culture and the perennial debates over the, the place of Arabs and the place of Muslims as well in the West. So Rhonda, can you speak to the implications of that for the post 9-11 generation that, that you've seen? I mean, do they inherit these experiences? Do they transcend them? And, you know, does the lab still exist? Well, um, how can I answer this? So. I guess I can answer by saying what inspired me to do that kind of research, to look at the impact of growing up in a world having only ever known a world at war on terror, so the post-9-11 generation. And it's because my coming of to identity as a Palestinian um, in particular is still so foundational to my passions, my life, you know, my life sort of course as an activist, as a writer, um, and so formative for me. Um, I can still remember ASIO coming to visit us at, my, at our family home in Melbourne because my father had started establishing a Palestinian um, cultural group for weekends to bring Palestinian families together on the weekends at the local community centres and parks and two ASIO officers visiting us, my mum serving them some cake and they were there to ask my father, is this political? What's your links with the PLO? Um, and just gentle interrogation, a friendly visit. And it's only when you start to connect the dots later, you know, retrospectively, that you start to see the moments in which you, you're, you were politicised and you came to a political identity. So I can very, very much almost play dot to dot with those moments, markers in my own life, the first Gulf War in year seven, um, even, you know, just uh, connecting what was happening politically uh, to my sense of political identity. So no longer was being Palestinian or Arab like an identity um, description, it became an accusation. And I can remember those moments. And so for me, I thought, well, the post 9-11 generation, was 9-11 such a huge thing in their lives? Or am I reading into it because it was so so powerful and so um, mobilizing in my own life and, and, and in others of that generation? And of course, the first thing that you, you notice and, and that of course that you confront is the fact of intersectionality, the fact that um, a Lebanese hijabi um, girl growing up in the southwestern um, suburbs of Sydney has a very different experience of securitization, of media and political narratives, of journalists at her school, of um, the, 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 the way that countering violent extremism policies um, apply to her suburbs than um, a Lebanese girl who is attending a school in you know, the Hills suburbs of Sydney, for example, or the Eastern suburbs. So class had a major factor. Um, gender was a huge um, marker. The visibility of your identity um, as a Muslim and as a, in particular. 
uh, made a difference. Uh, and of course, you, it's, you, know, you can't generalize, but there were some patterns, which one of them that came out very strongly was that 9-11 was, of course, never a lived experience. It's something that is just a cultural, uh, it's part of the cultural um, memory. And so it, it infiltrates and trickles down into classroom dynamics uh, in terms of, for example, chilling speech, um, you know, preventing some students from speaking up because they're afraid of being marked as being radicalized or that they're too political. Um, or being told keep Middle Eastern politics out of the classroom. But on the other hand, and I hate, I hate um, projecting an image of victims, that the communities are victims, because when you're, when you're engaging with young people, you're engaging with people who are, um, have a sense of, of energy and life and enthusiasm and exuberance. And the, one of the most dynamic parts of, of it all is that they are constantly using humour um, not just as a defence mechanism, but as a very creative way of playing around and resisting and speaking back. And so they deploy the same rhetoric um, uh, and embrace it and then use it as a weapon against racism. And so there were, it's not just these narratives of pain and, and victimhood. Um, and I think it's really important to pay tribute to those young people who are still able, Hassan, you write about in the context of Palestine, you know, spaces of heroic normality. I saw that time and time again. And I, and I honestly, I yearned for that kind of resilience that they had to be able to create spaces for themselves where the outside world, um, they refused it within the classroom. And if it was in the classroom, they were able to um, manipulate it in a way that they empowered them. I mean, you right. mentioned- Can I add something? Oh, yes, please do. Oh, yeah. Yes, go ahead, Hassan. Yes, I think, I think there's something that I was thinking about while Renda was speaking. And uh, I think it's quite, important, especially in a context of what it means to engage in anti-racism. Uh, I mean, here we are, uh, there's always in anti-racism a desire to communicate. Uh, I mean, obviously, here we are, the four of us, we, we could probably have discussion in Arabic and tell all Anglo people to go to hell and we'll have a conversation among each other and uh, sort of like help each other. But obviously, we are having it in English, and we write in English, and we speak in English, which is very important to think about, that we are communicating something to English-speaking people about, so there's a desire to communicate uh, in anti-racism. However, uh, to do so, we need to differentiate between a racism which comes with a desire to hate and hurt, and a racism which comes from ignorance, uh, because there's no point communicating with racists who desire to hurt, but there's a point for communicating with racism that comes out of ignorance. Uh, and so, 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 so when we are discussing this, and so I, I can imagine that most of the audience who are listening to Antidote at the moment are not animated by a desire to hate and hurt. Uh, there might be a few, let them suffer uh, listening to us, but, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, in general, we would say that people who come and listen to the opera house, et cetera, have a desire for knowledge and a desire to know more and et cetera. So even though they might slip into a stereotype or negative stereotype or what have you. So, so I think that, that what Randa is saying seems to me quite important in also to use and uh, mobilize strategically. Can I weigh in as well? Yeah, absolutely. 
Thank you. Um, I want to pick up on what Ghassan and Randa just said. Um, for Ghassan, you know, that point you made about, it, you know, those intentional racists just let them hurt. And for Randa, her point on humor and resilience, uh, you know, I, I, there's an interesting phenomenon that kind of marries the two, uh, which is the element of performance um, in the face of marginalization. So just thinking that. Um, well, so there's this phenomenon called protest masculinity. You know, it's a kind of symbolic performance of aggression and power to compensate for your marginalization. And what uh, one of the most interesting examples I ever saw of it in my own life was uh, in on November 3rd, 1998, the um, front page of the Daily Telegraph said, dial a gun. Gang says it's easier than buying a pizza. And the whole story was about a Lebanese, a, a so-called Lebanese gang who could get, who claimed that they could get a gun easier than they could get a pizza. Um, what's interesting is that the cut, the image and the gang were, were gr a group of young men, young Lebanese boys from Punchbowl Boys High School, my school, literally pre pre pretending that they were a gang, literally, you know, flashing gang signs that they'd learned from Biggie and Tupac, you know, the gangster rap of the United States. And, you know, one kid just had, a, had his hands like that, like he was pretending he had a gun. It's not a gun. He can't get a gun. If he could, he would have one. Um, and uh, the... The question would be, you know, like, why would an, a professional organized criminal gang reveal themselves like that? Why would they put themselves on the front page of the paper? So they were, and, and all the research into this area had demonstrated that those boys were just taking the piss. They were making fun of the journalists and the, and the paranoid white Australian public. Um, and because there's this fantasy that uh, the way we would deal with racism and marginalization is just to say, I'm not, I'm not a bad guy, you know, I'm a good person. But actually, it's also empowering to say, I am a bad guy, I am dangerous, um, uh, and, and, um, and to play up the stereotype. And so it, it, it was so interesting to me watching the young men lean into some of those stereotypes because they found it empowering, to put it bluntly, to scare white racists. I think that these subversions um, is what we would deem uh, a, a way of um, speaking back, speaking back to, and, and it's really interesting that you bring that up, um, Mohammed, and I, I definitely want to circle back to this in a little bit, but I want to pick up on the sense point around the sort of the, the different racisms, the racism that includes, the racism that excludes, um, you know, the civilizational and uh, colonial racism that you referred to earlier, the sense, uh, when we speak about the war, the war on terror. Um, I think we're, you know, at a point where we can say that the war on terror was never really about the war on terror. Um, enemies have been manufactured, uh, enemies, quote unquote. And, you know, uh, once war against an enemy begins, you know, it develops its own logics, its own justification, its own momentum, really. Um, and in your book, Randa, you, you know, my takeaway was the underlying sense, the way that you unraveled the war on terror as a spectacle, you know, of the world's most powerful country, really, the most, you know, the world's power reaching for its uh, imperialist instinct to fight what it deemed uh, and what it has convinced us all is a new kind of war. So can you speak to us a little bit, Randa, about the logics that drive the war on terror and to what extent you think it is more specter and spectacle than anything else? Well, I can speak to it as a Palestinian and, and as, as somebody who has been reflecting on it lately after the yet, uh, yet another example of Israel's um, belligerence and, um, and violence against Palestinians with the latest war in Gaza. 
and uh, thinking about, again, the way that Israel was so easily able to plug into the narrative of the war on terror in each time that it um, you know, deems it fit to go and decimate Palestinian life, it can so easily plug into this narrative of the war on terror through um, mobilising that discourse of security of terrorists. Even children become terrorists. And there was a report after the latest decimation of Gaza in which a prominent think tank in Israel um, was going through the death, the, the death list, the casualty list, and saying, well, the, the, these people were actually linked to Hamas, and so the children were by extension linked to Hamas. And effectively what they are doing is equating a Palestinian child to the figure of a terrorist, but they would not do that if they did not know it works, that they are plugging into um, a, a, a discursive narrative that works in the Western imagination in which there are, there are certain bodies which can be killed um, without impunity, and also the fact that when you think about, again, the, the activism that we do around Palestine, in the context of the war on terror, we often miss the fact that so much of it is about the global dealings of arms, the global dealings of you know, mass manufacture of arms trades, the fact that Gaza is a live weapons test laboratory, and it is, it is sold as that in terms of the weapons that are used you know, in real time on Palestinians and then sold to other Western countries. And so we can get really caught up in talking as um, about the racism of the war on terror, about the fact that if we would only humanise us and we can forget that there is an engine underneath it all that is it about, um, you know, weapons um, trade, about, um, you know, that military industrial complex and that we really need to, to, to factor that in. So just very quickly, uh, when I, in the book, you know, I, I was writing it at the time um, of the, the atrocious, you know, uh, um, murders in, in Christchurch. And I got so frustrated, as so many of us did, about the way that Australia, the Australian government, kept trying to make this as though this person, Brendan Tarrant, was an anomaly, as somebody who was um, a deviant, rather than somebody who was born and bred in the war on terror who has grown up seeing the global violence against Muslim bodies, so that Muslim bodies can be killed in the name of the war on terror, and that logic then feeds into killing the enemy within. And I think the, the conversations that occur in the mainstream or among um, you know, the majority often forget that the global war on terror absolutely animates the white supremacist violence that we are seeing um, being expressed with so much more confidence and normalisation now. Yeah, but, uh, I, think, I think there is a, uh, an interesting thing that in terms of uh, a certain difference, if you like, between the Israelis and the Americans when it comes to the war on terror, which reflects itself on, on Australian ground. And that is that the Israelis don't necessarily believe their own propaganda as much as the Americans believe themselves. Uh, the Israelis know that when they are doing propaganda about Palestinian terrorism, it works well with the people that are doing the propaganda. But when they are fighting the Palestinians, they take them very seriously and they try to know them very seriously. Uh, what we have seen in relation to uh, the war on terror in the US, and we have seen it now happen in Afghanistan. Uh, I read an article recently which says that one of the reasons why the Taliban managed to rout the Americans like this in, in 
in the end, is that the Americans actually believed the racist cliches they had of the Taliban. And the experts were giving them these cliches about this tribe will not talk to this tribe, you can be sure. And the Taliban knew that the Americans think that we are so tribal that we will never talk to this tribe. So let's go and talk to this tribe. And in this way, so there's something about racists who believe their own racism and racists who do it in a devious way, even though they don't believe their racism. I don't think we have worked hard enough on the relationship between racism and lying. People always think that lying is a, is a one-off thing. Uh, yes, just a few days ago, I was looking at this program of Trumpists who still be believe that the election was stolen. And we said, oh, I, I just so amazing. These people actually still believe that the election was stolen. I mean, maybe there are some, but I was interested by the fact that no one thought that there's mass lying. There's masses of people who know how to lie really well and enjoy lying to you and say, you, so, and racists do this. They lie nonstop. And yeah, and uh, there's no point addressing them by the truth. They just lie. Um, I want to uh, respond as well. Um, you know, so Rhonda was talking about the the Christchurch massacre, and um, the, you know this idea of like lying. You know that it's kind of built into the strategy. It's not it, it, the way things play out are not actually accidental. They're in, they, they, they're, there is a kind of strategy in place, um, and so looking at the way the Christchurch massacre played out, uh, in contrast to the to the narrative about Arab and Muslim communities. So I remember straight after the massacre, uh, you know, front page, uh, you know, tabloid uh, headlines, angelic child, you know, turned into hateful extremists. And there's literally pictures of the Christchurch shooter as a child, as a baby uh, with, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes and this innocent face. And there was this intentional strategy to, to humanize him. And if you put that in contradistinction to like Osama bin Laden, for example, I mean, you wouldn't, there's no way that you were going to have a newspaper headline where the front page image was of Osama bin Laden as a baby and saying, oh, this innocent, beautiful child, you know, turned into crazy, you know, Muslim extremists. Thank, 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 thank God for that, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, to me, they're the same, you know, like the, we, the, the, the narrative of the, the, the narrative around um, around the, the the guy that commit the Christchurch massacre shouldn't be any different to the way we learned about Osama bin Laden in terms of how oh. we're meant to imagine him. Yeah. And, and but what I want to talk about, which is so interesting, uh, in contrast to the way you know white terrorists are humanized, is the way Arab and Muslim communities are dehumanized. And I'll, I just quickly want to say this from a literary point of view, because you know uh, Edward Said used to talk about how it was very strange for him when he would be looking at these curriculums, these literary curriculums in the West, and he wouldn't find any Arab literature. It's a mystery that a, a literature of, that is thousands of years old and that is a literature of 400 million people is completely absent from 
a, a course on literary studies. And his conclusion, his theory, which was probably very sensible, is that if you look at the, 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 his, the literature of the Arab people, it's very poetic, it's very romantic, it's beautiful, it is humanizing. And if you're going to illegally invade these people's lands and steal their resources and slaughter them, slaughter their children, then you have to do everything you can to keep the public intentionally ignorant. You have to dehumanize them in order to get them behind you. And so I, I, the point I wanted to make with all of this is that it's not an accident. It's, a, it's an intentional strategy that is designed to uh, fuel a military industrial complex. Yeah, Mohammed, you, you, uh, you've got me thinking about the ways in which, you know, books are burnt first, you know, they go after the artists first. Um, so, and that's, you know, we could spend hours talking about that as well. It's a whole other conversation, but, you know, we're talking about the spectacle of the war on terror here and how, you know, driven by the military industrial complex, which is of course um, complicit with this kind of um, myth-making and, uh, you know, and, and this, this lying racism uh, to quote Ghassan, but the cost at the end of the day has been real lives, you know, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, as we're seeing uh, obviously, and, and um, in Cronulla, in Christchurch. And we also even recently marked the 20 years since Tampa, which, you know, is bringing it back to kind of Australia as well, uh, so-called Australia. And in doing my research for this, I came across, or I was reminded of, a, of, a, of something that Madeleine Albright, uh, who was then US Secretary of State 25 years ago said, um, when she was asked what she felt about the fact that 500,000 Iraqi children had died as a result of US sanctions against Iraq. And she replied that it was a very hard choice, but that, this is quote unquote, we think the price is worth it. So Albright obviously never lost her job for saying something like that. And as a matter of fact, is heralded as, you know, uh, one of the most prominent figures and commentators on politics. And, you know, our children, Arab children continue to die. So to me, this kind of, this is the equivocating distinction between civilization and savage, savagery, between a clash of civilizations and the collateral damage that we're okay, you know, from, uh, we're okay with from Abu Ghraib to Gaza to Guantanamo Bay. How many dead Iraqis and dead Arabs to make the world better? So the question is, Ghassan, do these equivocating narratives that we're talking about, these myths, do they fuel, do they drive empire or does empire drive them? Or is that a false binary to begin with? Look, I think, I think we need to think this contextually in the sense that where we are at, at the moment and recognize that if you think of the history of anti-Arab racism since 9-11, uh, we have to acknowledge that it has increased. And uh, if you think of the job of anti-racists is to, on one hand, decrease racism, and on the other is to protect the people who are subjected to it. I think anti-racism has failed to de decrease racism at the moment. But I think we're doing a pretty good job protecting ourselves against the racists. Uh, I think we are protecting uh, our love of ourselves, uh, the good image that we have. I mean, one of the things that is important to think about is that racists always strive on making you internalize the negative image you have of yourself. 
that they have of you, they want you to look at yourself in the same way and think of yourself negatively. And I think uh, and on, on that score, the uh, racists have failed massively. Uh, I think uh, the spiritual and uh, the political resources of Arabs in Australia and worldwide have been, have been mobilized to make Arabs love themselves. <laughs> and I think, uh, uh, I think uh, if anything uh, today, uh, the issue is more about knowing how to love yourself without becoming a pathological narcissist <laughs> rather than, 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 than being subjected to the negative image that the racists uh, have of you. Because I think that's where it becomes important. I think the response to racism, given that racists are on the rise, uh, is how do you create alliances with uh, non-Arabs who are not racist? Um, do you just want to create a block between uh, whoever you imagine, Anglos, uh, the Western world, etc., versus Arabs? Or do you want to create an alliance of Arabs and people who are not racist against the racists? Uh, this is, I think, one of the most important points that we are facing in relation to uh, the fact that racism is on the increase level. Rhonda, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that as well, um, given, uh, like Mohammed, you're also a, an author and um, you obviously would have a particular view on the sort of this equivocation of narratives and and um, how it fuels empire and how far back we go with empire. How far back is it necessary for us to go yeah. to understand wanna, the extent? I was just thinking about, um, uh, you know, how we often think, you know, in the popular imagination, the racism against Arabs in particular or Muslims is often marked as 9-11. Um, and, you know, Hassan talking about how things are worse, but there are also things that are better. Um, and there's two things I want to say about that. First of all, of course, it didn't start at 9-11, those sort of orientalized images and narratives we have been fighting for a long time. But I've got a letter here that was sent to me in 1998 by Channel 7. Um, it was We were writing to Channel 7 about True Lies, the film True Lies, which had Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was a deeply, you know, oh. typical narrative of the Muslim terrorists. And it was it's very interesting to see the way that Channel 7 responded to me about my um, claim that it was gratuitous racism and stereotype. It said, well, the film has had a successful cinema release. It was available on video for 12 months. And if you believe this film was deeply offensive to the Arabic and Muslim community of Victoria, your argument was with the producers of the film. When I think about, you know, how far we've come since then, I think that, well, the, the racism of the media elites, political elites, is a lot more sophisticated. They could still deliver the same outcome as this letter delivered, um, you know, not take the film off, um, not, uh, you know, censor a Palestinian voice, for example, with Q&A and, and all these sorts of things. But the way that they now speak about or respond to our complaints and to our pushback is a lot more sophisticated. So I think that's something that we have to also um, factor in. Sort of like what Hassan was saying before, there's the polite racism um, and the non-polite. And I think the polite is a lot harder because it's in those corridors of power. It's in the people who talk about diversity and anti-racism policy policies. And they'll use words like intersectionality, but nothing actually changes on the ground. Um, but another point to make, I think, is that um, it's 
it's, I mean, Sarah, you and I talk about this all the time. We are so in the trenches of fighting racism and it comes at every corner. I'm not talking about the interpersonal racism of somebody screaming on the street. I'm talking about Palestine. I'm talking about why you're doing Palestine, Afghanistan. And then you've got, you know, um, black deaths in custody. And it's an onslaught at, from every direction that it's designed so that you never get a chance to think about the what if it wasn't there? What would we do? How can we imagine a different space? What are our liberatory potentials? How can we um, imagine an alternative to this? And I think that that's probably the one thing that I resent the most about the racism that we have been fighting. It has robbed us of the opportunity so many times to just breathe and have space to imagine a different world and you know what you know to talk about the altar like you say Hassan, rather than always the ante and i think this generation is getting better at doing that and learning from us i'm certainly trying to do it more and i do it through my writing and muhammad you do it beautifully through your writing but i think that if anything if i had to name one thing that has been the most exhausting in anti-racism work it's deprived me of the opportunity to breathe and think about creating an alternative world not just from a position of resistance and fighting I would think that one of the reasons why um, this generation, uh, to take your point, Rhonda, is maybe doing it a little bit better is also because there have been more pockets for that sort of transnational solidarity for these shared struggles, which is really where I've come up for air when I am feeling depleted or defeated. Uh, you know, to, to, to your point around that intersectionality and living that, it's not just an intersectional um, fight and reaction. It's also an intersectional uh, how we build and how we create. And, and I do think, I do see that and I do take hope in that. But, you know, let's keep the positive, hopeful stuff till, till the end uh, so we can, you know, leave on a hopeful note. But I, I wanted to touch on um, something that Hassan said around the internalized racism uh, and also just mention really quickly that to anyone who's interested in Rhonda's story about the portrayal of Arabs in film, there's a quite a short uh, called, it's a short um, doco, I guess, Real Bad Arabs is an interesting one. And obviously there's a lot of literature uh, such as by um, Australian, Arab Australian academic, Dr. Mahal Krayim, who looks at Australian movies as well um, and their portrayal of the Arab masculinity. Um, but, you know, to picking off, uh, of, uh, following from that, uh, you know, to the point that we are spectacle and, and suspect really, Arabs in Western Sydney and Arabs in Australia have been subject to raids, crime squads, policing, terror legislation, citizenship stripping, you know, a whole industry called Combating Violent Extremism, CVE, has been built around us. And we are obviously not the only ones, but to, to speak to our experiences here, you know, even we, um, going back to that internalized racism, drawing on Foucault, have been forced to take an active role in our own surveillance through confessionals, through you know the condemnations, through the apologies. And so given this continual debate about our innocence and the constant surveillance of our presence in this country, is, is Islamophobia and or Arabophobia, uh, you know, the racism from that, is it better understood as Muslim and or Arab as infinite suspect? Is that where we need to start to be able to move forward? Is that what we need to reconcile with ourselves before we can love ourselves? Hassan, I'd be happy for you to, to go first, if you like. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I, th I, th I think that the issue of uh, how you 
uh, engage in surveillance uh, is part is part of uh, part of the degree to which you are also able to create certain autonomous spaces outside of the surveillance. And I, my, I mean, I don't have a personal, uh, personal basis to say this, but I have found often in my research that Arabs actually are very good uh, at uh, creating spaces uh, away from surveillance. Uh, in maybe in a Palestinian mode, we can say we are very good at tunneling. Uh, uh, we tunnel, and uh, I think uh, we tunnel, we tunnel, and we find connections through tunneling. Uh, we and uh, yeah, and I think some some authorities try to think of our tunnels as illegal, but I think uh, we thrive on maintaining these tunnels and they have been very good for us and uh, they will continue to be so. Mohammed, how do we shed suspect or are we perennial suspect? Is that our destiny? Yeah, um, so I'll approach this in a kind of different way because there's been so much has been said um, uh, in the last couple of minutes that um, I, I wanna just zoom in on one aspect that I think is important uh, especially, especially within the context of the of the name of the event, which is No Lebs, um, which is referring to the uh, 2005 Cronulla riots, because that's what the 5,000 white Australian rioters were, were chanting. Morning. No Lebs, fuck off Lebs, things like that. Um, and I, I think the, the, the biggest problem we face in Australia with these issues is just trying to get, generally speaking, the white Australian public and the politicians and the journalists to come on board with the conversation about racism, that, it, that, that is the problem. Um, so, you know, just recently in relation to uh, the 2005 Cronulla riots, former prime minister, John Howard, who was the prime minister at the time of the riots, said, I don't think that, this, that the Cronulla riots revealed that we have an underlying race problem in this country. You know, we can't even get him to come to accept that 5,000 white Australians marching on a beach looking for anybody that looked like us and physically assaulting them, in some cases nearly killing them, um, means we have a race problem. And there's, there's one particular uh, uh, point I want to make that I think is quite interesting. Um, it's in relation to this very famous Australian play and film called Puberty Blues. It's actually set in Cronulla. And in the, um, in the play and in the film, the white Australian boys who are the, who are the, you know, the main characters they go out onto the beach, onto Cronulla. They literally sexually harass and in one particular incident sexually assault one of the girls um, from Cronulla, one of the white girls from Cronulla. They, one of the biggest scenes, the most epic scenes in that film and play is when the uh, white boys get into a brawl with the, uh, the lifeguards. And what I find so interesting is the language that was being used to describe the Lebanese boys who were going down to the beach at the time of the 2005 Cronulla riots, the language that was being used to describe them because they were harassing the girls and because they were picking fights with the lifeguards is that they were un-Australian. And yet, when you look at a play like Puberty Blues, people argue that that is the quintessentially Australian play. So 
what's the difference? What's the difference between young Arab Australian boys going down to the beach in Cronulla and participating in this quintessentially Australian behavior and white boys doing it? What we were told is that it's, the problem is behavior, but it's not, it never was, it's race. That's the difference. And we have to just come to terms with that as a nation if we are going to be able to have conversations mm. about, about the makeup of the country and how the country functions. Yes, I think that, you know, you're, you, you are uh, sort of reminding me of what uh, Rhonda said earlier around, um, you, in, again, in the aftermath of Christchurch, we heard a lot of uh, self-comforting statements um, that, you know, it's not us, it's not who we are. And, and, and it's to be expected from the state, perhaps, uh, but we also hear it in a lot of progressive circles. So it's not just the right wing um, or, you know, the right, uh, to your point, Mohammed. And so I think that if we're, if we, uh, if we ever hope to, to reconcile this, then there, there needs to be, you know, that, that missing critical self-reflexivity needs to, the, the, you know, white Australia needs to do the work by the sounds of it. But I also don't think that that's, I'm not sure it's something that we can rely on. Um, but, you know, th this sort of brings me nicely to our, our final kind of closing thoughts and uh, final questions around, a uh, final question around, you know, what, what is the, what is, what does the future have for us? You know, in 2041, are we going to go, are we going to be back here <laughs> talking about these issues? Um, or, you know, are we going to have um, legal yeah, I mean, well, quote unquote legal, because I don't know that I always trust um, those sort of labels, but tunneling, let's say, tunneling autonomous ultra spaces, how do we create those? Um, how do we uh, push out literature that is not Eurocentric? Um, Mohammed, um, you, for example, in your book, uh, which uh, you've recently released called The Other Half of You, you know, it's been described as a tender portrayal of fatherhood. Never did I think that I would be reading that in my lifetime, you know, that that you as an Arab Muslim male uh, would be writing something and being having it described as tender, you know. So I see that your book is an embodiment of what Bell Hooks calls um, coming to voice, what is revolutionary and so on. So I'm hopeful as an artist, as an Arab, as a Muslim, I'm hopeful, but I want to know where you think we'll be and if you're hopeful and if you can keep it brief. So Mohammed, one minute over to you. Yeah, I will answer quickly. Uh, what I would say is um, the book, I think the book you're referring to is the other, my new book, The Other Half of You. Um, and it's been yeah. so interesting because right now, oh, thank you, thank you, Sarah. Um, I, by the way, you know, I've had the pleasure, I've got to say this, I've had the pleasure of reading the first draft of your upcoming manuscript. And, and I think if people want to see a beautiful and tender portrayal of fatherhood, they should also check out your book when it finally comes out, inshallah. Um, Thank you. But, but I, what I want to quickly plugging. say is, <laughs> what I want to quickly say is that the, um, it's been so interesting because we're talking about 9-11, the 20 year anniversary of 9-11, but today is Father's Day. And, you know, in my entire career as a writer, 20 year career, it never occurred to me once that I could possibly find myself um, on an intersection between Father's Day and September 11 and the way my writing and the way my story is being um, related to. You know, that last week, you know, the, the week that we've just kind of finished, the whole conversation was about how this is a good book for Father's Day. You know, it's a, it's a story of a loving father, of tenderness, of... Um, of our, um, you know, of uh, capturing the humanity and the love that Arab fathers can have for their, their children and more broadly fathers of color. 
Um, and then literally today, you know, the conversation for me is about 9-11. Uh, you know, I've got an article in the spectrum about 9-11. And, uh, you know, how my book fits into that, into the, to the conversation about 20 years since September 11. And what I would say, and this is the bottom line in terms of moving forward, it's actually, and we've talked about this quite a bit already, but, but it's a really important point that Rhonda's been bringing up. It's, it's about actually engaging in this through the intersections and realizing that we are complex and we are three-dimensional. We're not one-dimensional beings. Thank you, Mohammed. Rhonda, are you hopeful? 15 seconds. <laughs> uh, my hope is in the fact that we are seeing horizontal communities um, in solidarity now and that we're no longer facing, you know, the state for acceptance. We are actually working together in solidarity and that's where the power lies. And best for last, Gosten. Well, I used to be 20 years ago on my own. Now I'm looking at all of you and think this is great to have your company. So hopefully 20 years later, we'll have even more company. I really hope so. So in 2041, we won't be having these same conversations, but perhaps more complex, more messy, messy ones instead. I want to take the time to thank you all so very much uh, for spending your afternoon and sharing your insights uh, with, uh, with me and with the audiences and with Antidote especially. Uh, thank you again. It's such, a, it's such an honor to be here and to listen to you and to learn from you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Rhonda. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. You can watch this talk on stream and you'll find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Ideas at the House.